Okay, let me try that again. Welcome to the... <laughs> you were yawning, sorry. It's going to be one hour of this. Yeah. Welcome to Creative Insanity. Creative Insanity. Hi, my name's Servant. Welcome to Creative Insanity. My first guest is Garrett Davis. He is a short story author and a very, very good friend of mine, one of my best friends. We have both prepared a short story for this episode based on the same prompt and we haven't discussed it ahead of time. We share insights into our process and hopefully this will be some fuel for you to inspire your own creativity. Take it as it is. Let's get into the conversation. (laughs) Welcome to the podcast, Garrett Davis. I'm really happy you're here. Thanks for coming. Hey, thanks for having me. This is uh, the biggest podcast I've ever been on. I know. It, me too, actually. <laughs> actually, no, not true. I have been on one podcast, and I'm fairly certain it's bigger than mine, because this isn't released yet. This isn't out there. So right now, I have no podcast. It's not live. Not not live. Not totally. We edit these shows. That's the kind of professionals oh. we are. Interesting. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, when you are big and famous like Joe Rogan, people are going to look back on this one and be like, ah, this is when he had the nobody on. <laughs> well, <laughs> I didn't want to say it, but since you said it. Yeah, you know, it's, it's fine. <laughs> no, no, no. Actually, I'll, I will introduce you a little bit. So Garrett Davis, uh, you've been a longtime friend of mine, one of my best friends for a very long time, but you're also a published short story author. And uh, something that we've done as a special for this episode is something creative. We had a prompt. We decided we would write our own short stories between 1,000 and 2,000 words based on the same prompt. We haven't talked to each other about it. We don't know what's going to happen. But my intent is we're going to read these stories, talk about them, talk about short story, writing, whatever the hell we want to talk about. How does that sound? That sounds good to me. Um, I don't know if it's worth mentioning, but we used to do this back when you were more focused in writing <laughs> as uh, yeah. as exercises, but now you're the, uh, do I call you servant or Spencer? What, what do you prefer? <laughs> um, I would prefer your highness. Just kidding. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah okay. No. Sir, uh, That's Spencer, it. Where's, where's the disconnect? <laughs> <laughs> it's Spencer. You can call me Spencer or servant. Honestly, like some people, some people that I meet through the music stuff will call me servant. I know my coach calls me servant. There's certain people that do that. But most mostly people call me Spencer. So it would be gotcha. weird, weird if you started calling me something different all of a sudden. Just, just out of nowhere. <laughs> be like, yeah, so uh, I wrote this story, Daddy. And uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes, no. please, please, okay. call, please call on. me that. Please call me that. <laughs> no. um, so I want to ask you actually, first off, because we haven't talked at all yet about this process. No. What was the process like? We had about, I don't know, five days or so since we had the prompt. Did you get it all I done at once or what? Don't, I, think, I don't remember when you texted me about the, the prompt. It might have been last Sunday. And it's, what, Sunday now, so about a week. Okay. Yeah. And at first, I was like, this is a dumb prompt. I didn't like it. <laughs> um, and and that was it. That's where I left it. And within, like, 15 minutes, I was like, ah, damn it, I got an idea for that. <laughs> so uh, I said yes, and here we are. And uh, I, mine's actually a bit over the word count, but I, I had to wrap it up uh, and I, I couldn't sacrifice anything else and I was running out of time. So. Oh, interesting. 
So you yeah. went beyond the 2,000 words. Um, well, it was 2,000 to 2,500, was it not? No, <laughs> it's actually one, no. one to 2,000 okay. words, but that's fine if well, it's then, a little long. Over, overachiever, I, I've <laughs> got almost three. That's okay. But it's, uh, it's a quick read. Yeah, mine is, well, mine is 1,400 words, 1,421 words. I predicted about 1,200 partway through. I was, this was challenging for me, but I want, I want to know more about you because you're more in it. Like, yeah, I'm writing, I'm doing stuff, mostly music these days. I realized I hadn't written a short story in years. I had been working on my novel in sort of semi-recent territory, but I haven't done a short story like this. So if you're in it all the time. Where, whereas I'm, well, I, I mean, I haven't published in a long time, but I've been writing at least somewhat consistently but we haven't said the prompt yet and the prompt and i got it wrong when we talked earlier but it's uh idle hands are the devil's playthings is that what you said the playground <laughs> is playground yes playground idle playground. Ha- idle hands are a devil's playground gotcha that's what you got the you got the prompt wrong you got, got the, the word prompt. wrong <laughs> <laughs> i actually made an interpretive dance um <laughs> <laughs> yeah which we can yeah, do because so, you have video. So no, we're not. No. Okay. Sorry. What was the question? <laughs> um, question was how did you find this process of writing? How did you find writing your prompt? This is obviously before we get into the details of the story. We're going to read the stories before we talk about them. But just the act of writing. How did you get into this one? Um, well, like yeah, I said I wasn't thrilled about it at first, and then for whatever reason, this idea germinated in my head, and I was like, okay, well, I've got to do it. And I started writing it and it came out like shit. And I was like, nah, nah Perfect. we're done. Yeah. <laughs> and I put it away. And then I think it was like three days later. I was like, ah, oh, that's how it's got to go. And it's not like, I'm not even actively thinking about it. Um, it was just, there were these ideas, just, I don't know, doing their own thing in my head, which sounds a lot more airy fairy than I like. But uh, eventually I came back at it. It was a, it was a technical thing. For me, I had to figure out how I was going to tell the story. And then once I did, it just flew. Hmm. Um, and yeah, I think by the time you had started, I I was a little ways ahead of you. Yeah, I started yesterday. <laughs> last minute. <laughs> Le- legit but last minute. Y- you know what? No, last minute's good because it was, th- I think, the competition of this and uh, the deadline that really helped me push through and get it done. Um, I miss the competition, um, right. Writing on my own time and against just myself. I mean, you, we, we talk all the time and I've got what three, four stories that I just haven't finished, lose track of them, come back years later. You'll get started with one and you'll get into it and then you'll like start a new one and then you might circle back to one and you will finish them. Sometimes you will finish them for sure. But so like, with this one in particular, I, I really appreciated that. And I might have to learn from this and take it forward, but the momentum I had built, I had to keep going because I had a deadline. So if I get an idea in the future for something else, I should really, okay, we need to get this done within one to three days. Mm. Cause that's kind of, once I got the ball rolling, that's how this happened. Well, that's, what's interesting about our process is that, we used to do, as you mentioned, these write-offs, we would call them, where actually when we were living together for a short time, we would, I think, literally sit at the table. 
um, with our res- re- respective laptops and we'd set a timer for like an hour or something and we would just write like without talking, just kind of like shared workspace. And turns out there's an app for that. I forget what it's called, but we found, really? yeah, we found, I thought I told you about that. We found this out a few months ago that there is an app that Jamie, can you pull this up? Just kidding. <laughs> there is an app for having a work buddy. No matter where in the world, it's like you schedule time. We're gonna, I'm going to work on this, and then you work on that. And the app, oh, we did talk about this. Yeah, the app connects you as a live stream to that person, and you don't talk or anything. You just say, "Hi, I'm George," or whatever, and we're gonna. I'm going to work on this, and they say, "Hi, I'm Stephanie. I'm going to work on this," and. Uh, then they work. And it's like, we were doing that a long time ago, but we never made an app or millions of dollars out of that. So yeah, we missed the boat. Neither of us have the technical know-how. No. It would be interesting to get like just a writing one though, where you could, uh, same kind of setup, but you could see the word count on the other person's side. Oh, that's interesting. And specifically like, for writing. Not what they're writing, but just the word count. Yeah. Well, that way I that way I can sit here and just type gibberish, and you'd be like, "Oh, <laughs> goddamn!" Yeah, <laughs> he's so smart. <laughs> <laughs> well, what about you though? Like, how did you find it? Because hmm. this was a exercise for both of us. Well, I'll say that having not written a short story project in a long time, I found this to be immensely challenging. I procrastinated it because, like, I thought about it all week. So Sunday, I. I actually, I had thought of that prompt. I don't know what made me think of it. I didn't have any pre-story ideas. Um, I think I was talking with a friend of mine and it just came up in conversation. I was like, you know, I hadn't heard that expression in a long time. Idle hands are a devil's playground. Actually, you know what? Play things, wasn't it? Play, no. (laughs) (laughs) No, 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 no. Actually, I know exactly what it was. Um, was, I was listening to the Art of Manliness podcast and Brett McKay had a guest on and she was talking about the cult of productivity or something like that. And how there was a old mentality that pervades today about idle hands are devil's playground, that the workday used to be more task focused, but then the Protestant work ethic kind of came in and said like, you gotta be working because if you're not working, you know, it's a devil's playground, right? Like there's opportunity, boredom breeds crime, like all sorts of stuff like that became. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I was thinking of that. I was thinking of that, and that's when I said it to you. And then, yeah, I uh, I thought about it for like four days, and I kind of had an image in my mind, which maybe we'll get into more once yeah, once we start reading them. But I had an image in my mind, and I couldn't shake that image. And I was thinking, like, how do I? It doesn't like yeah, it really builds off of the, uh, but how? Like, I just can I, you, can you I, share the image without spoiling the story? I'll tell you the image after. I'll tell you the image after the story. Right. Maybe, maybe it'd be see too if hard. I could see if I can pick it out. Yeah, it'd be too hard like, to. That's talk. the one. <laughs> <laughs> I think it'd be too hard to talk about the detail. Maybe we should just get into the stories and then go from there. What do you think? Um. Yeah, we could do that. Uh, do you want to go first? Should I go first? I decided. I mean, we know that mine's longer. <laughs> I know. I know. We decide. I decided since I'm the host. That the guest should always go first. Oh, that's that's how we're gonna play it. Yeah. Yeah. So the prompt was if you're ready to go, 
um, idle hands are a devil's playground. Or in the case of my story, play thing. things. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it doesn't change the idea of the prompt. So, okay, here I go. So overlooking the pits of hell on a muted green-gray hillside in the shade of a large twisted tree sits Bub, a minor demon formerly of the Force Circle. The tree had been a sapling when he first lay down. Now, coiled like venomous snakes, its roots entwine him, locking him into place. A gray-black geyser of ash spews from the pit high into the atmosphere and falls back onto the plains of limbo like snow. Brushing perhaps a quarter century's worth off his lap with his free hand, Bub yawns and thinks about shutting his eyes for a little bit, a curious action coming from someone who is being hunted. They will come when they come. That is, if they ever get around to it. The problem with eternity, Bub thinks, is that it's a woefully long time. <laughs> All of it, in fact. When he was young, he'd been a paragon of his kind, punishing the souls of the dam with fervor and zeal. A baron of hell had once, uh, one of the original angels to fall with the great beast himself, had once nodded approvingly in his direction. At the time, he had been pulling the fingernails out of a thieves' hand. Then, one day, oh, say, 4,000 years later, he was running a man through with a rusty pitchfork, and he realized that it just so happened to be the exact same thief from before. It was curious. He did something he'd never done before. He asked the poor soul what he'd done to deserve such a punishment, and that what the man said haunted him to this day. He said, Yarg! <laughs> Bob pulled the pitchfork free, slapped him about the face a little bit, and asked him again. I said, what are you here for? Bikes, the man said. Bikes? Yes, bikes. I stole bikes. Stole bikes and I sold them. How many? His sweating, ash-stained brow furrowed. Sir, how many bikes did you steal? His face contorted and it was either great pain or deep thought. Well, I'm not sure. Maybe a dozen. Look, I'm really sore. Bub runs him through again, but his heart wasn't in it this time. <laughs> Sitting under the tree, Bub recalls how ridiculous it had seemed. All his torture and pain, his entire reason for being, because someone stole 12 bikes 4,000 years ago. How trivial a drop it seemed in the great ocean that was eternity. How meaningless forever suddenly became in the face of 12 bicycles. Just how long can one soul can one maim the souls of the damned and still get something out of it? All his other kin seem to be in near frenzy, animals driven by bloodlust, compelled to torture without end. There's something wrong with me, he thinks. But no matter how hard he tried, he never felt the same. So he did what, had, to his knowledge, no one had ever done. Bub quit. He walked over to the immense wall of the pit, the sky a sickly yellow dot far above him and began to climb. It seems like a long time ago now, his hands broken and bleeding when they finally crested over the edge of the cliff and clutched grass for the first time. Mm -hmm. He had crawled to where he sits now, chest heaving up and down with exhaustion. And he asked himself a question, what is it that I wanna do? And the answer was nothing. I wanna do nothing and they'll hunt me for it. Or at least they will when they notice I'm gone. He sits under the tree. It seemed as good a place as any. 
There is, after all, nowhere else he could flee. Earth was for the mortals, and heaven, well, that ship had sailed a long time ago. He resolves to wait and enjoy it. Bub lounges and lays, loafs and dawdles, and is becoming quite adept at dozing off. When not doing these rigorous activities, he discovers that he enjoys counting things. It feels <laughs> defiant to let the waves of eternity wash past him, moving nothing but his eyes and taking notes. Bub tallies the hairs on his head, quantifies the tentacles on a passing nightmare, and he adds up the very circles of hell itself. 100,032 and 9, respectively. A monster slowly floats into view, wafting up over the edge like ash, but far, far more terrible. A living paradox. The monster has a barbarian's musculature, but possesses the cunning eyes of a, of a scholar. Both beautiful and terrible to behold, his youth youthful body exudes an aura of decay. He has four tiny wings, two growing from his head and two sprouting from his feet. They hang limply in the air as if they're merely decorative. He wields a very impractical weapon, a golden staff wrapped with two live cobras, each vying to strike the killing blow onto the other. Fresh blood trickles down the haft, informing Bub of its ornamental nature. They'd sent an antediluvian of the sixth circle to pursue him. He had hoped the powers that be would have elected to send a team of imps or succubi to collect him, minor demons like himself. But to send a mighty antediluvian, apparently an example was to be made. Hmm. Tethered by the tree, Bub does his best to lie still and shrink back into the weeds. Luckily, he's had quite a bit of practice in the art of lying still as of late. Landing softly, the antediluvian scans the surrounding hills for his quarry. Black eyes fall on the tree, and he marches in its direction. Bub writhes against his bonds, unable to free himself in time. The antediluvian looms over him. Bub raises his free hand to block an incoming blow that never arrives. Peeking through his fingers, Bub watches his pursuer using the staff's blunt end to rip free the roots, or to rip the roots free of the ground. Been looking for you for ages. Glad to have the job done. Right, get to your feet and we'll be off. Weather's quite pleasant up here. Can see why you picked it. Should have looked here first, really. All that wasted time. Can't imagine climbing, though. But then again, I've got these little suckers. He clicks his ankles together and the little wings flutter excitedly. <laughs> Bub opens his mouth three times to speak and stammers so badly that he has to regroup and start over. Something... Uh, something he's seen his victims do while searching for words in order to make the pain finally stop. Truth is, he hadn't expected such a fearsome demon to have such a light and airy voice or such a rapid-fire way of speaking, seeming, uh, or speak in such a rapid-fire way, seemingly as fast as the creature's tongue would allow. There's something also vaguely familiar about him. You, you're Hermes, aren't you? Did the scepter give it away? The, the wings, actually, Bub says. Aren't, aren't they supposed to be on your hat and not your head? Aha, got you there. The hat hides them. Usually <laughs> this old thing gives it away. He shakes the staff back and forth, producing annoying hiss from the entwined reptiles. Don't know why I keep it. Sentimental, I guess. Enough chit-chat. Time's wasting and people want to talk to you. Are you always the messenger? Oh, I dabble here and there. But, the an but in answer, yes. 
for the most part. Call me Merc, by the way. Way shorter, saves time. He extends a hand for Bub to shake, who does so cautiously, but instead of shaking hands, Merc uses it to pull Bub to his feet. Merc brushes some remaining ash off of Bob's, uh, Bub's, Bob, <laughs> Bub's shoulder. Bub flinches instinctively, but Merc seems to bear no cruel intention in mind. This lack of malice unsettles Bub, but it also gives him an idea. So you found me. What now? Well, I'll take you down to the ninth, and then I'm off to the next job. The deepest circle of hell, reserved for the treacherous and ruled by the morning star himself. Brood mothers often tell fledglings tales in order to give them nightmares about how all nine circles are in reality the impact crater from the beast's fall. So hot the fire of the black lake is that the ash rides the thermals all the way up to the top, even now. Chained to its surface, Lucifer, enemy of creation, and he wanted to speak to Bub. The ninth, Bub says, feeling suddenly weak in the knees. <laughs> Merck makes a whistling sound of a dropping bomb. <laughs> Straight to the bottom. Look, you, you don't have to take me anywhere. No one has to do anything. It's all pointless because there's no end. Good, Merck says. We've agreed this is pointless. Let's go. <laughs> wait, wait, Bub says. You're not listening. Say I stole 12 bikes. Bikes? Yes, bikes. It doesn't matter. It could be adultery or murder, too. If you compare that one time, or 12, Merck says, shut up. <laughs> think of it as a whole rather than, uh, think of it as a whole rather than life and afterlife. You steal the bikes over 10 years and you get tortured for nine times the ninth power. The punishment's disproportionate to the crime. And yet those 10 years are being held up as more important than the rest. Merck frowns. That does seem a tad unfair. What do you propose I do then? Don't take me back, Bub says. Tell them you couldn't find me. Or stay here. You said it yourself. The weather's good. Here, Merck rubs his chin. What would we do? What have you been doing? Bub shrugs. Nothing. It's, it's actually really nice. <laughs> <laughs> Merck shakes his head as though a chill had run up his spine. No, 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 no. Always something to be done. Cows to steal, souls to carry, people to trick. I'd simply die of boredom. Now come along. Merck grabs Bub by the arm and pulls with all his strength. The edge of the pit gets closer. Bub can feel the heat of the thermals, hear the, scream, uh, the screams of the punished, and he does not want to go back. One last idea comes to him, and it's the same as the first, the alpha and omega of thought. Both uh, Bub drops to the ground, causing Merck to stumble. Any fight against Merck, a sixth ringer, and a very old god would not go Bub's way. But being a god might also be Merck's weakness. Monotheistic religions won out against the old pantheons, not because the latter lost its believers, but because the former consolidated all its power into one being. The old gods, gods like Merck, segregated and took dominion over specific realms and attributes. From what Merck had said, Bub might be able to stall. If he fails to comply, and engages in passive resistance, e.g. if Bub does nothing for long enough, Merck might just get bored enough to cut his losses, report Bub's whereabouts, and give him a chance to hide once more. Get up, get up, Merck yells, stamping his feet. But Bub does not reply. He lies face down on the grass, breathing deep of its earthen musk, in case he never gets another chance. Merck kicks him with a winged foot. 
Bub grunts, but does his best to stay still. He counts the blades of grass. Merc swings with his scepter and it lands with a thunk. The snakes, quick as lightning, bite in the brief instant of contact. Years of torturing has taught Bub not to scream. Screams encourage the attacker. There are 667 blades of grass in the field of view. <laughs> One less, and he might have taken it as an omen. Enough, Merc says, planting his staff in the soft earth near Bub's face. Wing, winged feet rise into the air. I've done it, he thinks. I've won. But the relief is short-lived and replaced by a telltale lurch of the stomach. Once firm ground falls away into the air below as the cliff crumbles, Merc hovers in place, staff in hand, and whistling the unmistakable note of a bomb being dropped. <sighs> Bub falls from up high, smote by a god he does not recognize. The air full of ash and the uh, full of ash and the smell of brim brimstone howls in his ears to the point where he cannot hear his own screams. He watches the yellow sky recede to be a small yellow dot, uh, the size of his thumbnail, and gets smaller still. It feels as though he's being slurped up like a plate of entrails, sliding ever closer to some dreadful maw. He shoots past his former, former home on the fourth circle and wonders if anyone has witnessed his passing. He's deeper now than he's ever been. The air gets hotter and seems to be charged with electricity. Miniature bolts of lightning lick at his exposed skin, leaving, leaving black scorch marks where they touch. To his knowledge, he is the only demon in all of eternity to quit, but he knows that he is not the first to make a headlong plunge. People often forget that Satan was once an angel at God's right hand, and why wouldn't they? He spent far less time as that man, and yet he's defined by his act of rebellion. Was he the devil then? Is he an angel now? Who, is, who was Lucifer when he fell? And who will Bub meet at the bottom? The force of gravity is overwhelming. Bub feels like he's stretching, as if his face is falling faster than his feet. The nausea-induced lurch in his stomach does not fade, but instead intensifies. He passes the fifth circle, rockets through the sixth. The seventh is alight with flame, but the ninth is the blackest ball of obsidian, growing steadily larger as he plummets through the eighth. The impact does not send ash streaming into the sky far, far above. It doesn't even break ground into a new layer of hell. It simply breaks him. An eternal being cannot be created or destroyed. Perhaps this is why God did not simply will Lucifer into the nothing from whence he came, like Merc, but rather like Merc, repurposed him. Bub is a conscious pile of flesh and shattered bones. With nothing intact for the muscles to pull on, he cannot move. He can, however, see out of one intact eye, miraculously undamaged. A miracle that has him praying to go blind. <laughs> Distracting himself from the pain, Bub counts. There are four impossibly large lengths of silver chain secured by four identical golden spikes driven into the black obsidian bedrock. These emit light from which he can see. Bound by these great chains is a giant. He's stretched over a section of black rock that wobbles like gelatin. Its, crust, its thin crust ruptures, spewing forth white hot magma onto the giant's back. He grimaces in pain, 
uh, and notices, and Bub notices 32 teeth ground down to little nubs in its mouth. A man kneels down to inspect what is left of Bub. He's wearing a three-piece suit designed in earthen fashion. His hair is neatly combed and he's wearing circular spectacles with glass tinted red. With a well-manicured finger, he prods Bud, Bub's flesh. Bub, Bub's skin rubs against the shrapnel of his bones, causing pain similar to having sand in your eye, except it's all over. He tries to call out, but there's no jaw to move. His tongue rolls around like an eel in a hollow cavity that was once his mouth. You're Bub, the man says, pulling his finger back. It's okay, I know you can't answer. Think it in your mind. Yes, Bub thinks. Good, the man says. And do you know who I am? Yes, but how? That's the body, he says, tilting his head in the direction of the giant. Think of me as the unholy spirit if it makes it easier. You quit. Yes, Bub thinks. Why? Bikes. Hmm. Bikes? Bub rolls his remaining eyeball, painful but satisfying nonetheless. And because, they're, and because of their method of communication, Bub recalls the thief 4,000 years ago, walks this unholy spirit through his revelations and actions up until this point and stops. Could he convince someone so sure of themselves that he saw himself greater than God? Uh, or sorry, could he convince himself... Could he convince someone so sure of themselves that they saw themselves as greater than God, that they were wrong? That's a bad sentence. <laughs> the idea is still there. Keep going. Yeah. <laughs> Lucifer takes his, gloves, uh, his glasses off and polishes them against the fine fabric of his vest, appearing to at least consider the problem. Then, with a sigh, he places them back on his face. You mistake me, he says quietly. I do not dole out punishment for sin committed. I do not sit and judge. It is not about a moment sat next to eternity, but ownership of that moment for it. I do what I do not to hurt and punish mortals, but to see the pain inflicted on God's face as I sully something he loves. And to that end, I use you. The giant rattles its chains as a fresh burst of magma sears its back. The cacophony of metal echoes ad nauseum through the caverns of the ninth circle. Lucifer wrinkles his nose. Oh, quit your whining. If I could use you in my war effort, he says, pinching a bit of Bub's skin and stretching it. And let's be honest for once, I can no longer use you. He lets the flesh go and it droops back into a sagging pile then I shall punish your idleness. He stands up, pulling a handkerchief from his breast pocket and wipes his hands clean of some perceived filth. At the same time, hands sprout from the ground all around Bub. They knead and massage his skin, working the muscle against the shrapnel of his bones. And there is nothing Bub can, uh, Bub can do to stop it, except count for to infinity. He starts at one. Oh, <laughs> uh, you just crapped that out. <laughs> yes, I should have got water. My mouth is so dry. <laughs> oh, man. That's so good. Thanks, man. 
I feel like I lost the uh, philosophical thread halfway through. I feel like it's where some of it started to come together, though. Like, I was pretty enwrapped the whole way. Like, because I don't know if you did that intentionally, but you have that moment of hilarity where it's like, what was it? Um, and then Bub never forgot what the guy said. And he's like, ah! Yarg! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, that is what I think, like, just sort of set me, it sort of disarmed me, right? And then I was just right. sort of like, all right. Like, I'm just listening. I think there is some deep philosophical threads in there. And very interesting how you titled, like, that's just masterful, the way that, you know, <laughs> he counts things and then how that's sort of the, the solution at the end is he's going to count to infinity. Like that's Yeah, just, to take his mind off the pain. Uh, Frick, that's genius. I, I'm, I'm glad that's what you got because I was reading it this morning and I was like, man, this didn't tie together the way I wanted it to. No, I thought that tied together very well. Cool. Yeah, like it was whimsical. There was there was element of like, I think the humor balanced out the grotesqueness of it. Yeah. Because um, if it was just grotesque and, oh, they're in hell and they're demons, I would be less interested. Yeah. Man, I just, there's so many things that I could say about that. I it, Number one, you got to email it to me so I can read it for later. But Yeah, if you want to do a, a edit pass, I'd appreciate it. Yeah, I, we already know one sentence that's going to need it. There's at least two. Um, <laughs> I, I, that is, that I was is like, what does the, the devil say? Tell me. <laughs> Worst part to stop. I know. Um, yeah, it, uh, from knowing you, I've started to write cleaner and cleaner in each draft. And uh, I, I, yeah, to have one sentence out of 10 yeah. pages is pretty good. Yeah, no, bad, not bad at all. I honestly think that's like one of the cleanest things I've heard from you in a while. Like, nice. I'm just, I'm kind of, I'm really struck at the profoundness of that, especially at the end, how the devil's like, I'm not, it's, it rings like truth to me. Like he's not doling out punishment, so to speak. It's more like the level of satisfaction that he gets um, by hurting the things that the creator loves. Yeah. And that well, because was... I had I had heard somewhere from my other um, my other friend who was uh, Catholic growing up, and he said that hell itself is in a bad place. It's just the demons are there and they hate you because God likes them better. Hmm. And so it was sort of like his idea of hell that that kind of wound its way into this. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It all. I mean, as a christian myself it makes me want to dive into the theology of it <laughs> because well it's just so interesting like the themes that you pick up on and the, yeah i just sort of like not only that but i gotta say you've gotten really good at your description in terms of building a scene and the ash and um how he describes the blades of grass and the feeling can you can you find that passage again when Which one? Hermes or are the uh, the other yeah, the Hermes fallen god or, uh, where he strikes strikes him with uh, the staff or something and there, there's the word biting in there. What did you think of his inclusion? I liked it. He was like a transitional character. He was like the confrontation with uh, reality, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know what was going to happen. 
I was like, is did you did you know it was Hermes before I dropped it? No, I didn't. Cool. Yeah. No, I didn't. I'm I wasn't as maybe if I was up on my Greek mythology or whatever. <laughs> um literally the only reason he's in the story is because I read a book about Greek mythology and it's like, ah, maybe I could make one of them the demons. Yeah. Well, it seems like a very well thought out universe as much as it's <laughs> Yeah, it's it's like you you could have written a book in there, but I know that we've talked about in short story the idea of writing the final conflict of a much larger story and having that be the scene that creates the uh the the, the ultimate story, right? I think you're referring to the uh the lesson in the Neil Gaiman masterclass I took where he said that the a short story is just the conflict of a no, uh the final conflict of a novel. Hmm. Is that right? Something like that. Something Jamie? Like that. <laughs> Jamie, Jamie, bring that up. Um, so it's Merck kicks him with a winged foot. Bub grunts, um, but does his best to stay still. He counts the blades of graft, grass. Merck swings with his scepter, which lands with a thunk. The snakes, quick as lightning, bite in the brief instant of contact. Yeah, that right there. Like, bite in the briefest instant of contact. Like, I don't know. It's just you, very sharp like description. That. Yeah, I like that a lot. It's very like you you definitely have gotten you've grown in your ability of language and how you've been able to sort of weave these interesting ideas together. Yeah. No, I'm really I pleased that. I appreciate that. Thanks. No problem. Why don't I read my story because it's much worse. <laughs> and then give yourself some credit. Well, I, I am super curious. I've been wondering. I was like, <laughs> I wonder if if uh, Spencer is writing about demons. So because that's where my head went. That's where my head went too. You'll you'll find out pretty quick. So it's like, I think it's it's really interesting to hear how you interpret it, and then you're going to hear how I interpret it. So, oh, did that story have a title, by the way? No. Um, can you think of one? <laughs> um, to infinity and beyond. <laughs> ah, I like it. Uh, uh, um, no. Maybe if our any of my listeners think of a great title. They could comment one. That would be Put really awesome. Put it in the awesome. comments, yeah. <laughs> Throw it up in the in the comments on Facebook or YouTube, wherever this is. That would be awesome. All right, so I'm going to read my story now, and then we'll we'll talk more after that. Mine is about half that length. Gorm is sick of trying. <laughs> <laughs> it's the same story. Every time he brings his boy to this park, there is a lingering sense of failure and malaise. Warstek and Balambau have already had their turns making fun of the boy. They ran circles around him earlier, sometimes teasing, other times pretending to be ignorant of his very existence, ultimately just making their own fun. Imaginary games come naturally to the hornless little gaffers. They like to play human, you know, or snake. Plain Snake was popular even when Gorm was a kid, many eons ago. Gorm imagines himself playing Snake for a minute, heading out into the field, the folds of the equipment, crumpled over and slithering circles around the boy. He pictures wrapping his arm around the boy's neck in good fun, taunting him as one does, and accidentally squeezing too hard. Gorm's boy, who has not been named yet, was two centuries the junior of Warstek and Balambao. That's the guest, anyway. He's had to explain why the boy doesn't have a name to other children around these ages sometimes, or even worse, to their fathers. 
who always provoked the feeling of red-hot embarrassment on the crux of his brow. Every gaffer in this neighborhood and below had been granted a name before they could speak. Not the boy, of course. Not Gorm's boy. Gorm's boy hasn't caused enough misery yet to be given a name. That's the damned thing. In fact, the boy didn't even shriek when he was born. He simply came down from the upward place in that terrible flash, like all infants, and lay on his back, whimpering pathetically and quietly, far too quiet for his kind. But that is why Gorm is here at this blasted park, alas. Here again. He's been coming to socialize the boy for over a hundred years now. He's been watching him fail to join in on the mockery of other children every day, and Lord knows he's done his due. Time and time again, boys like Warstek and Balambao show the boy how to do it. They show the boy how to poke fun and jeer at the other boys, when not by example with each other, then at least as often by their teasing towards the boy himself. Day in and day out, the boy comes here, tries to play with them, but can't or won't. It's a dilemma for a fool, truly. He is either too stupid to ever understand the importance of jibe and mockery, in which case he should be returned to the upward place, or he is just slow, and Gorm needs to practice that disgusting virtue, patience. And look now, why don't you? The boy sulks. It is hideous to see such pathetic sadness. It doesn't come out every day, but whenever Gorm feels most embarrassed or frustrated, the boy is sure to sulk and draw even more attention. He wrings his hands and stifles a motivating shout toward the boy, for fear that some other father may pick up who the boy belongs to. His tail feels sore from sitting on it too long. Some of the other fathers know who the boy belongs to, though. He does know that, unfortunately. They've come to speak with Gorm now and again, asking those invasive questions best disguised by small talk. They've learned to recognize him after a few dozen years, like anyone would. Seems the boy has a lot on his mind, hey? they say. So, what's your boy's name? Has he earned one yet? Funny, I've never seen a boy that young be so quiet. Another day at the zoo, hey, Gorm? A zoo indeed. There's that image of a snake again, Gorm thinks. Takes him more than a moment to unclench his jaw and his hands. Hands that used to coordinate meaningful work in the lower levels, you know. Now look at them. He was one of those famous diamond cutters for the last several millennia, in fact. But it's a hard business, and only the gaffers think of it romantically. His hands used to be basically two giant calluses. He was always thirsty down there. Now the only thing white on his hands are the near puncture marks from his own claws. And still the boy sulks. Even Warstek and Balambao have left him to go bother somebody else, someone a little more fun. I was a diamond cutter. Gorm mutters to the park bench. But he knows that he needs to be the big beast and go talk to the boy. Again, he needs to talk to the boy. Remember, he thinks to himself, you chose this career. Like with most old ones, there came your day. There came your day when condensing a human soul through those silly pressure methods started to feel, well, a bit empty. And so you took that day and you ran for higher ground. Good for you, Gorm. You gave up your prestigious career for this. You chose the easy work of a father. Well, he heard it would be easy. It was for his father, for what it's worth. Maybe if one of the elders told him that he was doing the same thing these little gaffers do, though, maybe that would have changed things. Maybe he could have prevented this travesty with a little wisdom. But no, 
like other disenfran- others disenfranchised with their careers, he idolized the role of being a father on the upper levels, thought that taking trips to the park and raising someone into their horns would be meaningful, even relaxing. <laughs> There's nothing relaxing about today. Gorm begrudgingly makes his path toward the boy after lifting his hindquarters with a louder grunt than he intended. The tail feels better almost instantly, unscrunching into unhappy, sweeping motions. That's your boy, hey, Gorm, one of the fathers says. Balambao's father, in fact. Credo is his name. Gorm nods to him while maneuvering and casually rubs the base of his right horn, pretending to relieve an itch. Yes, that's my boy, Credo, he replies. A rubber smile passed in the other father's general direction. Oh, and go fuck yourself, Credo, he adds. (laughs) It's only polite, after all. (laughs) When he approaches... The boy is sitting cross-legged like a human, chin to his chest and hands cupped under his mouth. Three centuries old and he still doesn't speak much, but the tears on his cheek speak volumes enough, one might suppose. It speaks volumes of weakness. Choking the boy to death would stop the tears, he knows, but it would also mean punishment for Gorm, so he keeps his arms held akimbo, claws firmly in palms. The light is starting to dim, he notices. It's almost blue now over the boy's face. No one says anything for a while. Gorm stands there and listens to the whimpers, just trying to think the right words over. What magical combination of face sounds are going to teach this boy how to cause misery to others like a normal gaffer? What hocus-pocus can be conjured in the face of this, Lord knows. Eventually, the boy speaks first. It's a surprise. I'm sorry, Father, he says. Gorm sighs. I'll do better tomorrow, the boy says. Gorm shakes his head. I've heard that from you before. He pauses, turns his head around a full 360 degrees to get a feel for who might be listening. Most everyone has gone away, though. Tender conversations are disgusting to witness. Is it so hard to try and hurt your friends, my boy? More snivels. The boy wipes his eyes. I don't have any friends, he says. They all make fun of me, father. They run around me. I don't like it. They want you to join in, he exclaims. Do you not understand? The boy's chest quivers, eyes cast downward. Gorm knows in that moment that the boy will never understand. Not in a thousand years will he understand. He is doomed to cause insurmountable suffering to his... Wait suffering to his father but isn't no it couldn't be gorm couldn't be the only one who suffers could he the thought is like a loud thunder in his mind everything has led to this moment he realizes now all in a moment that his boy is special but not because he causes enough misery in others but because he was designed to only cause misery in him this is my boy he thinks This is Gorm's boy. (laughs) Oh my God. How is that endearing and frightening at the same time? (laughs) Oh my God. I like that. You're a liar. That was really good. Thanks, man. (laughs) I actually cut out the the last line there. It was better with the second last line. Sometimes you gotta know what to cut. 
I, I definitely had a bunch of uh, Darwins I killed in this yeah. round. But um, what magical combination of face sounds. That has got to be my favorite line. I'm going to write it down and steal it, and I'm sorry. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> All good artists theft. I've heard that before. <laughs> well, we basically, it's interesting. We both, it's almost like we could have written in the same universe. <laughs> a little bit, yeah. yeah. We, we took it a bit literally. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess where else are you going to go with that? Well, you could, really, it's an old idiom. I guess you could go anywhere with it. I just couldn't get like if you hadn't if you hadn't done that did you have another idea no this was all i had so i i had just this story started with the image of can you guess the image i wonder um oh no i was expecting uh, like a more picturesque scene description um was it just the playground and the kids well i guess that was part of it it was more that i was it was the playground and this, the father trying to kind of console his son, like this little demon child or whatever, that yeah. I kind of had this idea that like the demon child's getting bullied and like. But like, how does that happen? But like, it'd be, it, would, <laughs> it would be like the opposite, right? It'd be like. Yeah. And so when I started to, to write it, um, I didn't, I think I was about, I would say it easily 75 to 80% through what you heard when I realized that that was the story was about was the fact that he was coming to a revelation that he was the one suffering. So the boy was in fact causing enough misery yeah. to be worthy. I, of I, when, as soon as that reveal happened, I was like, Oh, he's a prodigy. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like no. Gorm's special little boy from like wanting to choke him dead to like, it's, and it's, it's also something like, only like he makes me suffer like it's a special thing like a parent <laughs> i will say it has been very interesting watching you uh go through your your own you know being a parent and then seeing it bleed into your your creative endeavors um i think it gives you a level of insight that i don't have um, because that, like I said, that was very endearing in a weird way because, <laughs> but it's also like, I've seen that same look in my father's eyes, like where he wants to be proud of me, but he, he kind of wants to kill me too. And it's like, yeah, that's, that's being a parent. <laughs> Super healthy. Yeah. yeah. I brought you into this world. <laughs> yeah. It, yeah. There was something like I found, I found myself as I was writing Gorm to actually really feel sympathy for him, which was like bizarre because he's like, I also felt sympathy for the boy who was getting bullied, right? As like, oh, the poor guy. Actually, like part of why, what- Why can't you hurt your friends? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, and it's the play on words that we both did, like the obvious play on words. Yeah. Like at one point, your guy was like, ah, damn it. And I'm like, ah. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, well, my guy with the the image of the hands with the being him him being a diamond cutter and implying that you know he was doing like I I thought it so when he said Lord knows I was always thinking like he meant his own Lord he didn't mean the Lord Lord right like he yeah. was he didn't talk about the enemy so to speak but he was very much like I don't know it's like this the the cross of like a kind of mundane normal suburban life crossed with like 
this hellish it's existence. Spectacular, yeah. Yeah, and I was. It's almost like when I was writing the descriptions of the diamond cutter stuff. It's like it's kind of like the oil field. It's like Alberta around here. It's like he went and did like the super tough job, but you only do it for so long, and then you wind up kind of like getting off the tools, right? Like sort of a normal yeah. path. The, uh, the description of his hands is what brought me to to like him. Oh, really? Um, it, well, because I related to it. I was like, I yeah, I want calluses on my hands because <laughs> I've they, I've shaken hands before with people and they've got these nice soft hands and it's like, ah, oh, you don't work. <laughs> <laughs> You're nothing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I know. I know what you mean. Like it's different. Like my dad's hands were like callous growing up because you know he's working on the tools more and mm-hmm. yeah there, there's something like I it's funny too you know I wonder what you thought of this like did you notice that there was no feminine figure did it cross your brain at all no it didn't but if you like looking back on it now that you've asked it's like the boy is almost somehow like the story really is kind of about his father just wanting him to be a man. Yeah. And see and seeing this weakness, this femininity. <laughs> <laughs> that's going to get me in trouble. <laughs> no, we're we're talking uh the polars of femininity and masculinity, right? I don't think that's an unfair thing, but if that's in a historical context, obviously you don't mean that like women are crying and stuff like that, but yeah, it's well, like it's, yeah, yeah, like crying would not be seen as a masculine thing. Yeah. But it's it's less frowned upon. Let's just change subjects. This is <laughs> gonna get me in trouble. <laughs> Definitely gotta keep this part. How about that weather? <laughs> <laughs> well, we can't talk about weather on a podcast because it's edited, so it'll come out later. That's that's why. Ah. So we have to talk we have to talk about femininity and masculinity. No, let's <laughs> goddamn. I know. <laughs> no, the, 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 I'll stick with it for just one second. The why femininity and masculinity, why that might have came into your mind isn't because like man versus women. It's that symbolically in terms of all sorts of cultures, femininity was the receiving end of things. They would receive and men would be the giving. And that has to do with the... For yeah, the, yeah, yeah. That's that's sort of like... For people who are just listening, um, people, Spencer's I, making a gesture with his hands. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's a bit about what it is. And so like, yeah, his boy is not given what he gets, right? He's just taking it. And so Mm. that might be why you've had a bit of a leap there. But moving on. (laughs) Did you intend that when you wrote it? Well, at some point I realized, I was like, you know what? For some reason, I just felt like this just had to be about the boys. This was just about raising the boys. And it was just the fathers. No, I thought maybe it was cruel. Maybe because it's hell there's no mothers or there's no women or at all. You know, maybe it's like, you know, I'm thinking, I'm trying to think like a paradox in terms of like in the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. And then at one point he makes Adam and then Adam's like, Hey, I'm a little, little lonely. Like I noticed all the, all the animals have buddies. Um, I don't have one of those. And God's like, okay, I'll make you one. And I wondered like, what if that was like, that's such benevolence to like, you know, to make the yin and yin, the yang. And what if there was just no yang to the yin? What if it was all that, you know? I don't know. I was kind of thinking about that hmm. too a bit because that would be a totally different world and it would be a kind of a perversion of what is there. Um, yeah, I don't know. It was, it, this challenge really made me think, I know when I was writing the beginning, I was thinking conflict. I was like, conflict, conflict, conflict. 
how do, why do people care? How do I get them to care? Right. Because it felt like I was having to build up so much of background information of like, all the story is, is the guy's standing, watching his boy get picked on a little bit. The boy starts to cry. He walks over to his boy and has like three or four back and forths with him. That's the mm -hmm. whole story. But I felt like I had to build so much in his head, you know? And so in terms of conflict, I went with that he's sick of trying, you know? And then later on, I actually realized it's like I needed it to be a little more intense. So I kind of went back and gave that whole snake thing. They were playing human, yeah. playing snake. And he's like, he literally wants to kill his son. And so I thought that was, that was common. And it, it's those little details that really flesh out the world in a big way. So you know, going back and putting, oh, they played human, they played snake, and that was popular back in my day. Like those, that little anecdote does a lot to develop the world. Mm -hmm. And within this challenge, it because it, I cut out whole paragraphs describing how like the system of hell works, just the hierarchy. I had listed each like you know, the imps are on level one, the succubus level two, the blah, blah, blah. Because you get all the way down to Hermes, who antediluvian means old and forgotten. I was wondering um, about that or, word. I, yeah, pre-flood pre is what it means. Oh, it sounded fancy. Yeah. Because um, originally I'd called him just an archdemon, and I was like, ah, it's boring. Yeah. Um, and originally he wasn't Hermes either. He's just some guy. But, um, <laughs> like, I went all the way down, and I had listed you know what they were in charge of and there was a whole paragraph describing well this is why he's scared of him and i was like do i need all this or can it be implied right and uh seems like with, you made it yeah. implied well I, I hope so but same like same with your story here just the little detail of snake you know the little detail of oh well, what do they do deeper in in hell well they they cut diamonds or mm -hmm. you know just little tiny things really flesh out the way yeah. it works i think that you did a ultimately a more masterful job of description because there is something to be said, like there's a minimalistic description, which basically says, I'm going to say um, park and you're picturing a park in your brain and whatever mm -hmm. that park is that you've pictured is good enough for the story. And there's something to be said for that kind of literature. And then there's also the kind which will dive into, um, I guess the, um, like the, the fascinating language, the, like the descriptions, like the music of language in describing what something looks like. And I feel like that's something you did a great deal of, but not too much. It was like these ashen descriptions of things. And then like the, the bottom, like the crunchy kind of undersoil of the ninth level of hell or whatever. Like yeah. that kind of, those little details were like, ah, bang, just... Like they stick in your mind. Anything that relates to sensory, like smells, um, feel, touch, sensation, those are all the senses, right? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> uh, vision, you know, seeing yeah. like um, those sorts, like those little tidbits paint such a picture. Yeah, but I know I didn't do as much of that in mind. There was a little more minimalism. It suited your style better, though, to not do that. At least for this story, yeah, it did. Um, because the details you did bring in were things like, oh, I'm sitting uncomfortably on my tail. They were the important things. This isn't normal. This is a demon. Yeah, right. Yeah. Which is, uh, I was going to say, because you were just talking about like sensory information descriptions. It's, uh, I don't know if I ever got you to read Stephen King's on writing, but he's got the, I read the paragraph about description. He says, 
okay, you're going to describe something. And in this case, it was a rabbit in a cage. Everybody knows what that looks like. You don't have to describe too much of it. But there's a big blue eight, number eight, painted on its back. Now we're thinking about the same thing. So it's like mm. you can describe anything. And yeah, you can picture your park and my, or, and my park might be different because you've said the word park, but we're both thinking about the same thing. Right. But if you want to ground imagery, you need to put in that one special detail, that blue eight that will get the reader into your brain. Yeah. No, that's really good. I did read that. It's been a long time since I've read it. I remember that I, I admired, like there was so much that was good in that book, so much good fuel. Mm -hmm. But I remember I found one part that annoyed me a bit. Was it the part that he's like, if you're not writing all the time, you're terrible writing? <laughs> Oh, it was, yeah, no, it was, it was the reading thing. He was like, oh, yeah. Cause he has a point. He was like, uh, I, just to butcher or paraphrase him, it's like, he said, writing, reading puts you in the country of writing with your bags packed and you're like, you're arriving at the airport or something like that, where you must be reading all the time to be a good writer. And what he described was someone very obsessive reading all the time. Yeah. And he was like, books in your back pocket, book, books in your back pocket. He's like, you're standing in line at the bank, you're reading. And he even described you're sitting at the dinner table with your family and you're mm -hmm. reading. And then he kind of, which to me was like, yeah, no, nah, man, like you should spend time with your family a bit. But then later on, he, he builds up his family and says, you know, like my, my writing room is in the living room or whatever. It's like doors are open because that's where the yeah. family is. And that's what it's all about. And so he does draw that comparison, but I guess I found it a bit in my, yeah, a bit, bit hypocritical from where I was sitting at that stage in my life. It felt like he was saying, be present for your family, but, you know, ignore them to read and write. And that's how you're going to get, <laughs> that's how you're going to get really good. And I Do was the like, important thing. <laughs> yeah, because at that time I was thinking like, I, I wanted to write more. I was pursuing writing this novel and it was, how come I can't have more time to write? And so on the one hand, he's like, like I had a young family, I think, when I read it. So I, Millie was just born or something. And he was like, well, you got to be reading at the dinner table. And it's mm -hmm. like, I don't know, man. And then later he's like, just be there oh, for your family. Oh, kill you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she would not be happy with that. We have a no cell phone at the table rule whatsoever. It's funny that I thought of a cell phone when we thought of reading just then. Hmm. Instead of like a book or magazine or... What are they called? Newspapers? <laughs> <laughs> What's a newspaper? Um, so your last line, I didn't get a chance to ask you when that kind of popped up in conversation. What was it that you cut out? Oh. Yeah. And did you, did you know it or did you come across it? Like, um, did you know it when you started? You're like, this is how I'm going to end the story. No, I didn't. I, I literally finished writing like, 10 minutes before we started this podcast. <laughs> and so <laughs> it's like, fresh people. It's super fresh. Yeah. Like literally I, on that screen, I was like, yeah, I finished writing. And then I was like, Oh, I got to call Garrett. <laughs> and then, like it was just a total rush job. And we pushed our meeting time back by 30 minutes. And that was so I could finish this. But um, the lot, basically I felt like I had to kind of rush to the point towards the end, but I, I hit the hammer on the nail with the hammer, which was the last line was the boy who is finally worthy of a name and uh, totally not necessary. Like I wrote it then, but then as I was reading through it, 
this is Gorm's boy was a better way to end it because the implication was he just earned a name and mm-hmm. he'll get a name, right? Like you don't, I don't need to tell the reader that, but. Yeah, it was too on the nose. As soon as you say it, I'm like, ah, oh, it's a bit cringy. Yeah, yeah, it's not a good last line. But the last, when I stopped, it was better. Mm-hmm. You had a great last line though. I thank you because that wasn't the line. I did the opposite. I had the line that I was going to end the story on. And I didn't get there because I was like, it didn't, the story didn't pan out that way. What was that line? Do you know? Originally, Bub was supposed to be related to uh, Satan and no one knew. Like, but Bub, Bub would just be a braggart. Like he wouldn't, uh, Hmm. he wouldn't participate in all of hell's games, so to speak. He wouldn't be torturing people. He just wanted to do nothing and he could get away with it because, well, I'm the son of Satan. Oh, you know? oh, interesting. Yeah, okay. And then he was going to get punished in the way that he did. And the the whole, like a line was going to keep coming up throughout the story that, oh, you know, it, it doesn't need to be said, but Satan is a bad man. Satan is a bad man. And then the last line would be Bub receiving his punishment and being like, no, nah, his father was a good man. <laughs> oh, <that's, laughs> that would have been a totally different twist on things. Totally different story. Yeah, um, a very different story. But it just, as I was writing, didn't pan out that way. So I, and, and normally, like uh, a couple of years ago when we were more inexperienced, I would have clung to that. Yeah. No, that's the good line. That's the line I want. And uh, I would have shoehorned it in there and it wouldn't have worked. Wow. How did the story start for you then? Like conceptually now, did you have an image? You had this last line. So actually, this is, I, I've been taking notes. I literally have been writing it down because I, I thought you might ask. Um, and normally I just don't think or remember. It's like, ah, I came up with this idea. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't really, I was trying to be aware of my process because I don't, I'm not a person that, you know, has or thinks he has a process. Um, so we got the prompt and the original idea was, uh, uh, you know what? I did know it was playground because it was going to be a playground, like you know those like jungle gym dome things. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the, and it was going to be made of hands. That's <laughs> oh, that's funny because I actually thought. Yeah. Another image that I had for this playground was it was going to be a playground, and the uh, the slides and stuff would be like giant human hands, and the devils would be playing on it. But yeah, uh, yeah. So I, we both went very literal yeah. with this right off the bat. And then we dialed it back. And then we both dialed it back. So Yeah. Um and then yeah, like I said, he was originally related to uh the devil. And like Hermes wasn't in it at all. Hermes was a later addition. Uh originally three imps actually did come up to fetch him. Hmm. And there just wasn't enough threat there. Right. Um, so I had to up the threat. And it was also I, I found it really challenging to make the main conflict that the main character wanted to do nothing. <laughs> that but, actually, I mean, yeah, I thought about that. I suppose it is a desire. So it yeah. just kind of squeaked by, I think. No, I thought about that as it was happening. I was like, this is interesting that the character wishes to do nothing and now that's compelling given his circumstances. <laughs> you know? Yeah, and it was, it was very strange. He's like, does a lot of dozing and he... Yeah, <laughs> yeah that, those descriptions there were pretty pretty great too. Um, so at, up to that point, like pre-Hermes, three demons related to the devil, and it was going to end with that line. 
And that's when I was like, man, this isn't coming together. This isn't, you know, flowing very well. And the weird breakthrough I had that I wrote down was like, well, I used to grow up listening to Stephen Fry read Harry Potter. Hmm. And he has a very particular way of talking. And so the whole first page is just me writing in Stephen Fry's voice. Really? Yeah. If you listen to it, like if you listen to me and I mean, you know me, I don't, I don't say certain words like, uh, or, or it just seems very British when I read the first page. Right. Um, and that's, that was what got me the momentum I needed to progress the story. Hmm. That's just, interesting. just a weird, yeah. A weird little device to, to keep myself engaged because a lot of the time I find I get bored with my ideas because I know how they're going to turn out. This is a side note, but this is a, a plug for Stephen Fry. Um, or is it Stephen Fry? I, I don't know. Him. I think it's Stephen. All right. Steve Han Fry. Um, <laughs> he recently did, he does the audiobook for all of Sherlock Holmes. Oh. On Audible. And it's like, he loved those books apparently growing up. And so all of them and his own introductions to them. It's like, I forget, it's like a gazillion hours on Audible. Yeah. But you can get it for one credit. So wow. I've been meaning to. It's like 79 hours. It's like something stupid. It's like yeah. a crazy amount. Well, that's, I'm going to pick that up because I listen in my truck all the time while I'm at work. And, yeah, you know, you got to get sponsored by Audible now because we're just plugging them for free. Absolutely. Actually, I am sponsored <laughs> by, just kidding. <laughs> Wouldn't that be crazy? No. But. Yeah, third episode in. So you took you took on a voice basically. You were like, I'm gonna to try to think a little differently. I think that's something that I do, but never I'm not sure I had a specific person in mind. Like I try to get into his head a bit, but that is definitely a very highly specific voice, right? Mm-hmm. But it fit with the whimsy that I wanted. Yeah. Um and I don't know how my brain made that connection because you know, when Harry Potter came out and was new, I was listening to those audio. Oh God. I was listening to those audiobooks on cassette tapes. Oh man. What are those? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Flip to side B. You'd be in the middle of a chapter. It's like, ah, right. It'd be like Harry Potter. Now what? Yeah. Who? <laughs> who? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh. Those were the days. Um, I never listened to audiobooks and those things. So I think my, my parents had some lectures, um, went to some like Catholics, uh, men's conferences and family life conference, and they had tapes that you could buy. And, uh, I, I had re-listened to some of those. I guess that's about the only like book thing that I'd mm-hmm. listened to, but I was CD. Did you have, I mean, you were crunched for time. Did you have any specific thing that like pulled you through? For my story, Other than the deadline, the deadline was a big one, and I'm thankful for the deadline because, you know, I haven't finished a, a story. I haven't finished a short story in a long time. I got real determined to work on my novel, which is still a work in progress. Technically, I did finish the first draft like two years ago, and I've been working on the second draft in bursts. But I hadn't touched short fiction. I tried a little bit. But I'd never, I, I wouldn't finish it. But there was a time, actually, when I was working in the oil field, I remember I was always writing fiction. It was like a lot of flash fictions, short stories. But I got published in like an online magazine 
and I think I almost got published. I remember that one. Yeah, and I almost got published in another one where they were like, I forget what it was. It was like they gave me special mention. They gave me this big note, but they ultimately, Daily Science Fiction, I think is what it was. Right, yeah. I almost got into that one. And there was another one I was like, I was going to get in, and they accepted it, and it was going to be this big, not big, but it was an independent magazine. And then they like folded and then they stopped doing it. And I was like, oh no, I was going to be published in them and it never happened. But I anyway. I forgot about that. Yeah. I remember so. being elated because I was so competitive. <laughs> <laughs> we we did yeah. kind of have some, I think, healthy competition at that time. And then what sort of happened is that I started to focus more on rap music and getting more into my music career of things that naturally I had less time for writing. And so it was like, if I'm going to write, I'm going to work on the novel. And then we kind of lost a bit of that camaraderie. We even started like some back and forths where I'd write a chapter, you'd write a chapter. We'd do the odd um, write-off or whatever. But then was it last year? I said, I'm just not going to focus Your on full-time fiction. music, yeah. Yeah, where it's just, I can't, I don't have time for it because I always felt like maybe I could do the writing thing later in life and get a novel published later and night now is like music time, but I, I don't know. You're so much more productive with the mute or prolific with mm. the music. It's, I wonder, is it, is it the sense of finishing projects? Cause I agree with you. This is like the first short story I've finished in a little bit and I'm so excited to have something done. Yeah. And it happened in three days. Like <laughs> <laughs> lightning <laughs> fast. Yeah like fall into the ninth realm of hell fast. <laughs> but it would no, it was really good. And I think that like, honestly, just a good passing edit on that bad boy, hardly a big edit at all. Like just a nice passing edit, fix up a few lines, check her for grammar or whatever. And so, yeah, you could send that, you get that one published in some magazines. Maybe hoping, but um, you didn't answer the question. What was the question? <laughs> <laughs> is it, is it the act of finishing? So you, yeah. you finish you finish your song. So you well, you have this repertoire, this library of songs, and it's like, look at my work. So I and think the writing takes longer. So it's less satisfying or, or less rewarding, right? You get less kick of dopamine along the way. I do think that's part of it. I mean, mathematically, me at my prime writing speed, I could pound out a short story in the time that I'm doing a song. Mm-hmm. They're different animals, but I could do it. I think part of it is that. What's your word count for a, a typical rap? Well, I guess it depends. Uh, any song could be from 450 to 1,000 words, maybe on average. They're short essays. It's like a flash fiction? Yeah, they're like flash fictions. Now, sometimes it's more than that. Like I did my lead of battle or my battle angel EP, and mm -hmm. that was. It was all like one song, but then it became like seven songs all together. I think it was like 4,400 words. So that was like a substantial thing and it all rhymed. So, but I think why music took over is because my particular set of gifts and interests and desire to work in was, was all just towards music. The fact, like I want to tell stories, but I wasn't confident to tell stories through music. I am now, I'm starting to in more ways. But I love to make music and compose music, and I love the challenge of words. And the fact that I could get a song together, you know, 
you know, less than a week. In a, like in a couple, sometimes like in a day, I could get one together in rough shape or a couple of days, a couple of good sessions. It was, yeah, you're getting like this huge kick of, wow, I did that. And I, and I love the excitement of being done something. And yeah. so that kind of helped me think like a finisher. And now like when, with my music, like I am a finisher. Like I don't, I finish what I start. Well, once in a while I'll move on to something else, but like I'm, I'm cyclically fil- finishing things. And my problem now with the music is that I have so much finished and I'm not getting it out there. I'm not marketing. I'm not doing a good enough job being consistent with my listenership. Yeah. And I always want to get back into stories. And that's why when starting this podcast, I thought, man, my perfect opportunity, perfect opportunity. My buddy, Garrett, short story writer, like, um, one of my best friends talk to you all the time. And it's like, this gives us something to do to stretch ourselves and to get these write-offs going again. Mm -hmm. I'm part of me is like mildly sad that I had to make it a public thing for me to be motivated (laughs) to do it. (laughs) But I'm glad that I'm doing it because now it's like, yeah. yeah. Your marketing brain is like, how can I sell what I want to do anyway? <laughs> well, it's how do how does it get me back into that? Well, like the country of storytelling, like Stephen King says, like if I'm not writing short stories, I'm not, you know, I, I don't read much fiction, probably not something I should admit, but I do, I read fiction that blows me away. And then I don't read much fiction. I read a ton of nonfiction. But for some reason, that works for me. I don't know why. I used why. to give you shit for it because um, I'm always a prolific reader of fiction. But since I started being a plumber and being in my van with Audible, I find that I listen to way more nonfiction now than I read fiction. And the real life aspect of it, I think, is more useful because mm. you can draw from it and it seems more believable. Yeah. Interesting. Well, I... Th- I think that's it. It's like if you think like a storyteller, well, okay, some of it is you have to have worked the muscle. Mm-hmm. I mean, we were both kids at one point and we were thinking like, oh, let's write stories. And Well, you actually wrote one. You wrote a whole book when you were a kid, right? I, I wrote a novel in high school, but um, <laughs> I became a writer because I wanted to impress girls. I wanted to be a, a dark and brooding man uh, <laughs> who, who wrote stories and they were terrible. The girls or the stories? A little bit of both. <laughs> yeah. why? It's probably why mo- men, so many do men most do most things. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I think there's always an element of wanting to impress someone and being a man. It's kind of nice when you can impress the opposite sex through some creative endeavor. It's why, like, why does any guy pick up the guitar? It's not to sing Wonderwall at parties. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i don't know well i i'm trying to think of my own case and actually like nine i for becky and i like i was 19 i started dating her which means like three years later i was married was that true 24 or something it happened pretty quick you were married pretty quick after i met you yeah so it was like 24 or something when i got married so like impressing women less of a motivation for me when it comes to the music i think every guy every everybody wants to feel somewhat tantalizing in some way to the opposite sex mm-hmm. they, they want like like i hear some of my lady friends it's like they have mixed like they don't want to be hooting hollered or whatever if they're walking down the street but there's also part of them that's like yeah they want guys to be like interested enough to be like you look fine 
So there's there's yeah. sort of that kind of mixing. It's like guys to serenade them with rap poetry. <laughs> guys want similar. Like guys want to be valued. They want to be looked at, and people to be like, damn. Like people want guys want that too. So, it's just they, so it was a little bit women for you too. But what was the rest of it? <laughs> um. Well, the fact that I was getting a good shot of dopamine, it was. It's, I guess I was more in my element. But I feel like now what I'm doing with rap music, I'm much more in my element because I've much more often combining storytelling with rap. And if I w didn't have my background in writing fiction and pounding out short stories, I wouldn't have been, been able to approach rap in the same way. Like my Battle Angel EP is a really good example of, I mean, it wasn't my story, but I approached it like a storyteller. Mm -hmm. How do I pull someone? It was a retelling. Yeah, retelling. Yeah, exactly. What what do they call it when they write the book of a movie after the fact? Novelization. A, a novelization. Yeah. Yeah, I, that's I, what you did. A rap novelization. A, a rapazization. I've heard someone <laughs> someone online called it a rapification. A rapif. I like that better. Yeah, yeah rapification. Okay, you do like it better. I thought of that actually before I started calling it a rap novelization. Yeah. And then someone online the rap, is like, rapification is because it's kind of like you're making fun of yourself too. Yeah. It's, it's like, ah, it's a rapification. I don't know. I like it. <laughs> Maybe that's Which, what I'll call uh, it. drops on Tuesday, by the way. Right. Yeah. Tuesday for this, from this recording. So when this comes out, the video will be out guaranteed oh, okay. for people. So cool. people can check it out for sure. Remember to like and share on Facebook. It's your boy servant on YouTube. <laughs> It's your boy. It's your boy right here. It's your boy. This podcast. I want to think though. Like I know we. Sh this is longer than my normal podcast go. I have yeah. a feeling that as often as we do this, this is probably going to go a little longer than normal. It takes a while to get through the stories. Yeah. Well, I'm wondering. Like, is there any other juice that we can pull from this storytelling process that we went through? Take your time. <laughs> Not that I can think of, what, like, because you're demanding it. Yep, <laughs> exactly. What no, did you, I, what did, I, I, I got it, I got it. What did you learn? What did I learn? What did I learned learn? that I, I've got to strike while the anvil's hot if I want to finish a story. Because it was, it was the fact that I had the deadline and I had the idea that I got it done. Um, whereas... Every other time, it's kind of reiterating what I said earlier, but every other time I would just sort of leave the story, get bored of it, new shiny idea, let's go. Mm. Um, so strike while the anvil is hot is what I say I would learn. That is also the title of this podcast today. Strike while oh! the anvil is hot. Boom. <laughs> yeah. We may not have titled your story, but we titled this podcast. Yeah, leave the story names in the comments. Yeah, no, actually, <laughs> please. I'm terrible at naming things. So if anyone has a good name for my story um, or Garrett's story, we're definitely open to suggestions. And when this when this comes out, probably I, th I think I'm going to have these down to a science within a couple of weeks. Every podcast is going to come out. We still won't have a name. So please comment. Little audience engagement. You get a writing credit if it gets published. Oh, is that, that's like... Uh, <laughs> Lit reactor used to do, hey? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I feel like the juice has also been squeezed, not totally, but amply. That's not a good word. <laughs>
but <laughs> just some ample squeezing going. Oh, I should. Move what on. is this? What is? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's where we that's where we should end it. I feel like this was this is what what I wanted to do with this was give a concrete example of creativity in motion happening to people attacking the same idea in their own way and then talking it out a little bit and seeing what could be learned and hopefully inspiring some people to strike while the anvil's hot and do something like this as well. Yeah. I, I think that you should have these as like uh, semi-recurring episodes and you should get Crystal and, and JH on here and see what they do. Yeah, that would be good. I'd like to see if they're interested in that. Plus I'd like to have you on again. For sure. Absolutely. Well, a lot of fun. Yeah. I'm glad you had a good time. Next time we'll have a beer or something. Yes. I know we both lamented not having one. Yeah. Water is a must during these readings. I found out. So we're learning. We're learning (laughs) and we're learning at home. I hope. Okay. Peace out. I'm going to go to the outro now. (laughs) (laughs) Garrett Davis signing off. (laughs) Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you found any of this valuable, please consider subscribing, recommending this to a friend, or leaving a positive review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you happen to be listening. If you watch this on my Servant YouTube channel or Facebook page, please leave a comment and share. I love to hear from my listeners and learn from them. Learn more about me at www.servant.com. That's S-R-V-E-N-T.com. Thank you again for your time. Now go be creative and same.